All right, take your Bibles if you would. <clears throat> Turn to First Thessalonians. We're in a series. If you're new or visiting, uh, you can go to our website, download the previous messages, and, and get caught up if you want, and uh, listen to those if this catches your attention. But we're in chapter 4. And as we're heading towards Easter, I can't think of a more providential timing uh, for the topic that we're going to cover over the next two weeks. And you're saying, well, what topic is that, Steve? Well, the topic for the morning, I think, is the most debated, reviled, loved, mocked, hoped for, anticipated, resisted, feared, and investigated topic in the history of the world. It is called the Great Rescue. From the other side of the coin, it is called the Ultimate Imperialistic Hostile Takeover. It is called the world's greatest nightmare. It is called the Christian's greatest expectation. It is an absolutely simple idea. And yet, having said that, it is the most complicated and layered event in the history of the universe. What are we talking about here? What are we looking at? We're talking about the second coming of Jesus. We're talking about the return of the resurrected Christ. And in these passages, Paul lays out the topics. Now, there's a lot of bandwidth to this. Uh, have you ever thought about how difficult it is to be a pastor and try and condense the second return of Jesus into 30 minutes? I'd encourage you to try that sometime. <laughs> right? Uh, and the problem is, in the old days, the, the pastors were the only ones with commentaries, right? And they were the ones, they were usually the most educated, so they brought the word. Well, that's not true today. Uh, you have all kinds of access to all kinds of information, all kinds of commentaries. We've got all kinds of blogs. We've got all kinds of uh, posts and that kind of stuff, right? And so uh, there's incredible access. So a number of you may have more information and actually studied harder on this topic than I have, all right? And so as we're looking at it, there's probably several different places. For some of us, it might be a brand new topic. If you're a brand new believer in Jesus, you're going, second coming, I just met him. Didn't, didn't know he left, all right? Uh, for some of you in the middle going, wow, I'm so busy raising kids and stuff. Yeah, I'll look at that later when life slows down. Good luck with that. Some of you are going, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying it. You better hit it right, okay? Um, we're going to look at that today. We're going we're gonna to spend some time uh, go, going through it. I just want to take you to two levels I said it's, it's a very simple idea. Here's, here's how simple it is. Jesus left. Jesus is coming back. Pretty simple, right? Two-year-old can understand that. Jesus left. Jesus is coming back. Now, if you read between the fine print right, and read the small print there, how complicated and layered is this event? It involves unknown timing, quantum mechanics, prophecies from multiple books of the Bible, astrophysics, unseen spiritual realities, Jesus' own saying and words, history of what the Bible calls the mystery of wickedness or the mystery of iniquity, what the Bible calls the mystery of godliness or righteousness. It involves free will and the sovereign before the foundations of the world, omniscient will of God. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. All right? And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul lays out for the first time in words the teaching instructions for how believers should anticipate and wait for the return of Christ. And we're going to look at uh, those instructions this morning. So 
Let's begin. I'm going to start with verse 16. This is called the parousia, right? Very fancy Greek term. And it reads like this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, when we come like this, we should be the most expectant people in the world. And yet life has a way of throwing curveballs. Life has a way of derailing us. And it can be old news. Yeah, been there, done that, heard that, said that. Can't figure our way out of the swamp. We're up to our armpits and alligators. And the second coming seems millions of years away. Lord, the Thessalonians ran into some of that, and I think some of what Paul's going to write to him is really instructive for us, for people who are in the midst of a chaotic and busy, tumultuous world. You are pointing them back to something, and not um, to rebuke them, Lord, but to encourage them. I pray your encouragement this morning. I pray this will be something that... uh, you can laser in on with your spirit and have conversations with everybody uh, after service and you can continue that dialogue during the week and people can say, hey, where's my focus and is it on you? And Lord, I pray you'd have a great time with that. And So we launch into this in your word with great faith and ask this in your name. Amen. All right. All right, so let's start out. What I discovered, in, in uh, and I've read this dozens and hundreds of times before, but I, I locked onto something that I don't usually lock onto, and that was the fact that the context of writing those verses occurred because a big problem happened. You can read it really quickly when you, you start with verse 13. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. The setting, the context is that the Thessalonians had deeply embraced the gospel, right? We've walked through that. You can uh, download the messages again and and re-listen to that. But they had embraced the gospel. And it was in the midst of all kinds of tumult. Riots broke out. Paul had to get shipped out at midnight so he and Silas and Timothy wouldn't get killed. Uh, The church kept going in the midst of all that. And, And they were doing fine with that. They were rocking with that stuff. But something else came in the equation that tipped them in a way they hadn't expected. You ever have your weight leaning one way and then all of a sudden you get tipped the other and you've got no brace and right on the ground you go? Uh, That's what happened to the Thessalonians. What was happening? What, What tipped them? Well, in the passing of time, some of the believers began to die. Now, understand we're not talking big gaps here. Um, it was not uncommon for somebody to die in their 30s during that era. All the things we take for granted, uh, they didn't have. And so like when they got bronchitis and it turned into pneumonia, they died. When they crossed a a creek and got an infection, they died. When they got a cut and they couldn't heal it, they died. When they got what we would call a root canal and an infection in the tooth, they couldn't fix it. And so they died uh, because they had an appendix, they died, right? And so all of a sudden, the believers are dying and they weren't ready for that they hadn't anticipated and it wasn't just oh yeah somebody over there died these were people that were close to them might have been a dad might have been a mom might have been a husband wife a son a daughter a neighbor people they had stood side by side with in some of these conflicts and so 
all of a sudden, they have questions. They hadn't anticipated this coming their way. So now what happens? What happens to them? We, we thought Jesus would come back and, and we'd all be together with them and, not, and they've, they've died. We weren't ready for that. How, what do we do? They just simply hadn't factored that into the equation. Now, before you say, well, how silly could that be? We don't do it any better, right? We act like we're forever. We act like we're going to walk around forever. And that's why we procrastinate on all kinds of things like life insurance and wills and, and those kind of things because we're immortal. And of course we'll be alive when Jesus comes back, right? That's what they were thinking. It wasn't going to happen to them. But the truth is it can happen like that. So Paul is writing to a group of people who it couldn't have happened to, and it did. And here's the problem. They weren't just grieving from the loss. That was a big enough hit. But now fear sets in. These questions weren't just... These raised up fear. Were they to be separated permanently? If they were Christian, why did they die? Right? If You ever had those questions? And I want you to notice something here in verse 13. Notice Paul's tone of comfort to them. Notice, he's saying, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. Right? He's talking to them in a very comforting tone. He's saying, hey, I understand you got some questions. Let me fill you in on some things that will be an encouragement to you. And in this, Paul is extending compassion, not a rebuke. He doesn't look at him and say, you idiots, don't you remember what I said? Can't you ever get anything right? Don't you know how to track this right? How could you falter so quickly after I left? Right? Kind of shocking, right? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Hey, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. He extends compassion. Why? Well, the odds are really good that Paul actually knew some of the people who died. Remember, Paul was in Thessalonica for, they guess, anywhere from three weeks to uh, three months, and uh, he was the one that planted the church. And so as he planted this church and then had to leave, he was keeping in contact, and it's very likely he knew some of those people who had passed away. It wasn't just the Thessalonians who were hurting, it was Paul who was hurting. And so he wrote to comfort them. And most people don't realize this entire passage is couched in that. It's not couched as a theological treatise. It's couched as encouragement and comfort for those who are struggling. Actually, in the passage, it talks about them being faint-hearted. If you read the book of Thessalonians, it says it talks about being faint-hearted. How had they become faint-hearted? Because they had sustained a significant blow. And Paul is trying to encourage them. And I want to I take just a little rabbit trail here, if you'd allow me to. Because uh, I think it's important. There's a very common misunderstanding, and I think this passage brings it out, that uh, if we're Christian, we're bulletproof. And that if somebody close to us dies, it really doesn't affect us at all. Or the other um, attitude is, um, if somebody dies and we're Christians, I should just be full of joy. Praise the Lord, they're in heaven. How wonderful. They've got it so much better. This is awesome. Oh, that is so great. And, you know, we're just supposed to be full of faith and and a model of uh, that to other people. Can I call that bullcrap? For those of you who've been through that. I have other words for it, but I'll be nice this morning. All right, here's the deal. 
Tears come when you least expect them. Tears are God's gift to us when emo- the emotional circuits are overloaded and overstressed. I, I don't cry much. Um, I was born in the Midwest and that was inbred in me very early. Guys don't cry. But I, I tend to do it in, in significant places like, for example, uh, at patriotic things. I, I, I tend to tear up. Uh, real poignant places in movies, and I love it in movies because it's dark so nobody knows you're crying. Right? Um, on TV shows, if something really captures something, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll tear up just because it moves me. It's a, it's a transcendent moment, and it moves me past. I, I, my circuits overload, and all of a sudden tears start coming, and I'm really grateful to God for that. And I want to say this. There is nothing wrong with us as Christians crying or grieving over the loss of a loved one who has died. And the idea that we're over it in three days, okay, that sticks with us for years. That stuff, you don't just walk away from that stuff. And Paul understands that. And he's writing that to the Thessalonians saying, hey, it's all right for you to grieve. Um, we don't handle death very well in our culture. We don't talk about it. We avoid it. We try to keep it sanitized. We try to keep it from not being stinky. We try to keep it uh, away from the sight of children because it'll damage them for life. We try to do all this stuff. You know, I grew up in a, a culture where uh, they closed the window shades and we'd ask my dad, why are the window shades closed? And we'd say, well, because somebody's dying. And sure enough, they would. And in those days, they held what was called a wake. And the old wakes are what they would do is they would put a person, the dead person in the bedroom and then people would come and visit and then you'd go in the bedroom and it's called paying your respects. But what it was was you reconciled. All the things between you and that person, good or bad, you sat there with that person and talked through it and you reconciled. You've often seen this portrayed on movies when somebody goes to a gravesite, right, and starts confessing. Well, they sanitize that a lot. But in the old weeks, that's what they would do is put them uh, in a room and then you would go. And you say, oh, how gross, how morbid is that? I want to tell you something. It's a whole lot healthier than the way we deal with death, how we process it. We never get it out. We bury it. We stuff it. And then we pretend we're all right for 30 years. I just think that's an enormous, colossal mistake. I have done a lot of funerals in my uh, ministry career that the Lord's uh, afforded. I've done a lot of weddings. And I tell people all the time, I learn far more at funerals than I ever learned at weddings. Weddings teach you about the beginning of things. Funerals teach you about the end of things. It teaches you what's important. And it teaches you how to measure your days and your years. And uh, this is what the Thessalonians were growing in. But here's what he was saying. I understand it's a huge loss. But in the midst of that loss, there's hope for the Christian. Paul is saying, look at, look at verse 14 here. Or I'm sorry, verse 13. Brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. He calls it sleep. It's temporary. Because Paul is going to allude to this resurrection factor as something to look forward to. There's something to anticipate. It's a temporary deal for the Christian. And this then launches us into one of the most vivid descriptions uh, ever written uh, in terms of how you deal with death. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
Notice in that it is so easy to believe we are the generation who will be alive when the Lord comes. Thessalonians thought they were. They were sure. They were confident. Their world was rocked when people started dying. Wait a minute. We're going to die? And he didn't come back yet? Yeah. And Paul gives this solid assurance that they don't have to worry about their loved ones if they have died in Christ. Because here was the point. They're going to show up before you do. Right? When you're talking about resurrection, they come alive first. They're the ones that Jesus orchestrates and pulls together so you don't have to worry about them. He's got the situation well in hand. He's taken your treasure and he's got it well in hand. And hear that today if you've lost somebody really close to you and you're still having a tough time getting over the loss. He's got your loved ones well in hand. Believer or non-believer, God's going to take care of them. He knows what's appropriate. But especially for the believer, all right? Especially for the believer, he's taking care of them. He's got them locked in. And that's why it's so important to get this settled uh, before you die. The church has long had the phrase, with him, in him, and through him. And it fully applies here. Right? You've heard that creedal saying before, in him, with him, and through him. Um, look again, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, there's the through him, God will bring with him, there's the with him. Those who call and have fallen asleep, for this we declare to you by word from the Lord, those who are alive and left, coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, when it all comes together, we will all be in him. So with him, through him, and in him is really being laid out by Paul here. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this word from the Lord. Notice it says here that he gives a guarantee. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That's a guarantee. And and there's a lot of questions. Where did that word come from? Um, Was that Paul? Was that, did he get caught up into heaven? Uh, You know, was that when he met the resurrected Christ? Was this something Jesus said that the apostles knew that hadn't been recorded? Was this uh, one of the prophets? There were a lot of prophets in the New Testament time, right? Agabus was one. Uh, There was the prophets in Antioch. And those, did it come from them? Nobody really knows for sure. Nobody really knows exactly about the exact quote or the source. But the, the word is don't worry. They're taken care of. And you can imagine the Thessalonians going, oh, uh, well, okay then. I can run with that. I can roll with that. It was a source of encouragement. And then out of that, Paul lays out a sequencing for this absolutely once in a lifetime, once in history, paradigm shifting, reality changing, stunning event of grace that is going to roll out called the second coming of Christ. Let's look at that again. We're looking at verses 16 and 18. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The caught up phrase there is famous, comes from the Latin, means rapier or raptus. And out of rapier, we get rapier, which means the sword, right? You get that picture. And raptus comes the famous word, 
rapture, right? Caught up with him in the clouds. Now, notice in this, there's a lot of stuff missing, right? Immediately you're going, okay, what about all the other stuff? And I just put together a quick list. Here's a quick list of all the stuff Paul doesn't talk about. He doesn't talk about the book of Daniel or any of the old, other Old Testament books. Right? He doesn't talk about the book of Revelation for one good reason. It wasn't written yet. You cannot quote what does not exist. Right? So he can't quote Revelation. Uh, he has no pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib timing explanations. You're saying, what's pan-trib? That's my position. It'll all pan out in the end. done a lot of study on it and uh, I think God knows and we'll get to go through it. Uh, he doesn't talk about Ezekiel's war. If you don't know about Ezekiel's war, that's Ezekiel 38 and 39. Go there this week and you can look through a fascinating description of stuff. Uh, he doesn't talk about the millennial reign of Christ. He doesn't talk about the great white throne of judgment. There's a ton of other stuff. For example, he does not talk about hey, when we get resurrected, when we get caught up in the air with Christ, what will our bodies look like? What will they do? Right? Paul writes later on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to go and look there, uh, you can look at that. There's just all kinds of stuff he doesn't talk about. Why? Because he wasn't writing a theological treatise on the exactness of how the second return will happen. What he was writing for is those of you who suffer, those of you who've been through pain, those of you who've been lost, lock onto this. Your Jesus who has left and has walked with you all your life, that Jesus is coming back. Take full encouragement in that. He's giving the big picture that he has their loved ones well in hands. And in the midst of this, Paul uses three authenticating signs that he, uh, he talks about, and they're very important. One is, he says, a cry of command. Now, this is not somebody going, ah, you know, that kind of cry. All right, that's not the kind of cry of command. What we're talking about is a commander giving the charge or the call for the battle to begin. So if you've ever watched war movies, right? And uh, like if you go to the old Civil War movies, right? And the da 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 charge, right? And out everybody goes. Okay, they don't go charge. Right? It is a cry of command. It is one of authority. And I was trying to capture this. And it's really hard. Uh, so I thought of Lazarus, right? And when you think, remember the story of Lazarus? He got sick. Jesus was away. He waited three days. Lazarus died. He said, okay, now let's go back. And the disciples said, they're just trying to kill you. You, you want to go back? And he said, yep. And Thomas said, well, let's go back and die with them. Very optimistic viewpoint. And, um, and Martha comes running out and says, Lord, my, my brother's died. And he says, do you believe? Uh, he will, I can rise, he'll rise from again. And, he, and she goes, yes, I, I do. And, and he says, I am the resurrection, right? And, and uh, he sees the grieving. Mary comes out there weeping. He goes to the tomb. Jesus himself is crying, which I think is a good uh, sign for us guys. It's okay to cry. And, uh, and he looks at the tomb. And when he gets to the tomb, when you read the text, he doesn't say, hey, lazy man, you want to come out? Buddy, come on. That's not what it says. It says he called forth, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came walking out of the tomb. Right? It has that tone to it. It has that authority to it. And I can't capture it with my own voice, but go to Revelation, if you would, chapter 19. 
let me give you a description of the person who's going to give this cry of command. This person who is returning. John captures uh, some of the most vivid imagery in the history of writing and literature. He says, Then I saw heaven open, starting with verse 11, chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. A white horse has all kinds of symbolism to it. Royalty, authority, purity, righteousness. We're talking about the main guy on the main steed. Right? It is an incredibly uh, authentic symbol. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it is this guy who gives the cry of command. And that's why the Bible is so urgent and so implorative when it says, turn to him now while you can. Make peace with that king. Don't stand distant. Don't stand off in your sin. Don't stand off in your rebellion and your stubbornness and our stiff neck. It says make peace with him. Because there is no rebuttal. I was talking to one guy and he said that, I asked him, um, how do you see Jesus? He said, well, Jesus and God are the same. When Jesus comes back, he'll rule the nations with, a, with an iron scepter. He says, doesn't sound like a very benevolent dictatorship to me. And I agree. It depends on which side of the coin you're on. It's either the great hope or it is the greatest terror and fear that our world will ever face. Zach, uh, in one of the songs I so appreciate, uh, the way he does that and his prayers and he was, had the scripture up, Romans 9 and 10. It says, For if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and uh, I'm sorry, if you speak and oh, I gotta, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you uh, confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord raised from the dead, you will be saved. All right? It's talking about coming to peace with this king. Making peace with him. So that God is no longer your enemy. Because when he gives that cry of command, there's no quarter taken. Notice he comes in the robe, and what's the description of the robe? It's dipped in blood. Where does the blood come from? It comes from treading on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Amen, period, exclamation point. And the only opinion that's going to matter at that point is God's. And Paul was saying, that's the guy. Thessalonians, if you're faint-hearted, hey, you're losing confidence. This is the guy who's given the cry of command. Take strong encouragement in that. The second one is um, the voice of the archangel. The archangel that we're probably talking about here is Michael. 
Um, we only know of two of them in Scripture. One is Gabriel, and Gabriel is the one who announced to Mary that she would be the mother of, of the Messiah. And Gabriel appeared in several other things. But Michael is the one uh, who appears in the book of Daniel, and he's the one uh, who was fighting the prince of Persia uh, and holding him back. Michael's also the one who fought with Satan over the body of Moses and what was to happen with the body of Moses. And, um, and he was the one entrusted to that. And so we're talking about in the uh, hierarchy of heaven, uh, Satan used to be the highest. He got thrown out. So in his replacement is probably Michael. And we're talking about, so when the king gives the command, he gives the cry of the command, then you hear Michael calling muster. Right? And if you're not a military person, you wouldn't know what that means. But once the general gives the order, now, move. Right? When D-Day hit and Eisenhower gave the word, then everybody else, Patton and everybody else, jumped in motion. And Michael musters everybody up and the armies of heaven are lied out and rode. And Michael makes sure they're all assembled and mustered and ready because now it's time. We're talking incredible authority here. And not only do you have the cry of command and the voice of the archangel, but you have the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God is seen as judgment. The trumpet of God is seen as finality. The trumpet of God is seen as um, call and warning. The trumpet of God is all through Scripture. You can spend a lifetime studying it and never catch it all. Uh, But there's two kinds of trumpets that uh, are familiar in Scripture. One is the shofar, the ram's horn. How many of you have heard of a shofar before? Right? number of us, yeah. Very unique sound. And so you can imagine if there's one of those cats up in heaven blowing a shofar, that's going to have an amazing sound to it. The whole universe is going to recognize it. The other kind of trumpet was the trumpets that were made for the Ark of the Covenant or for the temple. Moses uh, made trumpets for the Ark and then David copied those for the trumpets for the temple. And we know that everything that had to do with the ark and everything that had to do with the temple was a copy of things above. These were just shadows of what's really in heaven. And if you've ever heard trumpet blasts, right? Where, you know, right? And that kind of thing. And it, it's a very cutting, it cuts through the noise, it pierces, it, you can hear it, it cuts right across and, and cuts through. Can you imagine what the trumpet call of God will sound like? Hear the cry from the authority of the king. Michael musters the troops and the trumpet sound. Paul saying, that's what you need to take encouragement in. Your king's coming back. When he sets the time, when he sets the place, then he sets the tone. Paul saying, take great encouragement in that. All right, I got a little wound up, but it's, it's cool stuff to talk about. I'm going to ask the guys to come forward for communion, would you? That's why the Bible talks so strongly, encourage us, again, to make our peace with this king. How do you make peace with that king? You acknowledge that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The Bible says that Jesus was the perfect man, the perfect God, that there was no sin in him, that he came on this planet, walked to show us what God's will is. Jesus said, I do exactly what my father says. And he played out that will, and and the will of God was to take and overcome this thing we call the fall, this wreck we all feel, the way things aren't supposed to be. And he was to take that sin 
and bear that sin on the cross so that reconciliation could be made between us and an all-holy, all-righteous God. The Thessalonians had done that. And Paul said, okay, since you have done that, don't forget who you've placed your confidence in. He's going to come back for you. And the point behind this is that the whole thing was meant to encourage. Paul's saying, look, the people who have died, take great comfort. They're going to rise first because they're in Christ. Just because they've died doesn't mean they're out of Christ. They are in Christ, just as you're in Christ. And they're going to rise first. And then we who are alive and who are left, who is that going to be? Is that us? Are we the last generation and all the dead in Christ will rise and then we'll hear the trumpet? I don't know. Could be. Could not be. We'll talk a little bit more about timing next week. Here's what I do know. We are a whole lot closer to it than we were when Jesus walked the earth. And if you take that biblical stuff, kind of rolls itself out in 2,000 year increments, you kind of got some things rolling down the pike that we should be paying attention. We should be looking. Matter of fact, that's what we're going to talk about next week, why we should keep our eyes uh, looking that way. But it says, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Whoa! Can you imagine if it happened right now? Wow! Have you thought about that could happen right now? What if it happened Monday? All the things we think are so important suddenly don't become too important, do they? And so the Bible says, keep your eyes focused on the king. Keep your eyes focused on the kingdom. That was Paul saying to the Thessalonians. He says, because we're going to be with the Lord forever. We're going to always be with him. You don't have to worry anymore. It's all all rolled out. It's all taken care of. And then what did he say? Encourage each other with these words. Why? Because the Thessalonians had gotten faint-hearted. They hadn't expected to suffer that kind of stuff. Now, listen, this is a tough group of people. They went through riots for the sake of Christ. They went through all kinds of civil disorder. They got thrown out of their homes. They lost their places. Some of them lost their jobs and their status in culture just because of Jesus. They could handle some tough stuff. They took some pretty tough persecution on But they were vulnerable just like we're vulnerable because somebody close to them died. That can really take the wheels off your car if you've been there. And their wheels got taken off and Paul was putting the wheels back on. You know, when we come to this, this is, this is strongly meant to encourage us. But we've been given another picture as well. Uh, and that's the picture of communion. Right? These two pictures, the return of Christ and communion, were meant to help us who are faint-hearted. Those of us who have trepidation. Those of us who have doubt. Those of us who uh, are stuttering a little bit. Tripping a little bit. They're meant to encourage, to remember Jesus has not forgotten us. Jesus, this symbol, remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said, I'm doing this now. You won't remember till later, but then you'll understand. And later they did get it. Remember the apostles, they, it said they ran and locked themselves into the room. Courageous bunch. So we understand that, right? Don't you just want to run from life sometime and lock yourself in the room and not have to deal with it? It'd be so much easier, especially if you had a fridge in there. All right? It'd be a cool thing. 
But we, we have to engage with life, and it's not, it's tough. We've, some of us have been, I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at some of the severe losses we've endured. And Paul points to the second coming, and, he, and we're using communion as well. This is meant to keep us focused on the prize. Do this till what? I come back for you. This is meant to keep us focused on the last picture that we just talked about. What did he say? Remember, this is a picture of my body. Remember what it took to cover your sins? Remember what I did? But when I did that, it shattered all of that. All your sin is covered. All your sin is paid for. You are forgiven. You are washed. You are clean. I covered you. The sacrifice has been paid. You don't have to pay it anymore. Therefore, keep your eyes on me. Do this in memory of me. Also comes with an encouragement and warning. The cup, we talk about wine as uh, uh, so many symbols, but the one most common is the symbol of blood. Remember we said that that great king who gave the cry command, when he comes back, the robe is going to be dipped in what? Blood. His blood was shed for us, and now he's saying, come under the protection of my blood. Come under what I provided for you, because don't be on the other side of the coin. It is an absolutely terrifying, terrifying reality. Come so that we can have peace. Let me be your king. And he's saying that to all of us. Drink this in memory of me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, close us with a song that will be very familiar to you, but expresses the tone and the theme and the sentiment of what Paul was saying to the Thessalonians. Let's pray together, all right? Father in heaven, thank you this morning. I I have the distinct sense, Lord, that you were speaking to somebody really personally this morning. I don't know who it was. I know that's good pastor speak, but that's not pastor speak. I have the sense somebody needed to hear this. Somebody was faltering and somebody has been off track and that this re-put it back in focus. And Lord, I pray you have a great conversation with whoever that is. I pray they feel your strong encouragement, Lord. And uh, Lord, I, I seek you for all of us in that. But as we come and we think about this, um, it can. we're going to talk more about timing next week. And it can be so much of crying wolf all the time. And we just get tired of it. And we're just going to go through life. And then pretty soon we aren't even looking anymore. And the, the Bible says that is really dangerous, really deadly. Help us not to do that. Help us to be waiting expectantly as if you could come at any moment. It would alter the choices we make. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen.